Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased you've been able to join us for the program. But when God opens your eyes, as you see yourself as you truly are, and you see your heart as it truly is. The prophet Jeremiah ministered to four kings, one of whom was King Jehoiachin. Jeremiah told the king that he needed to repent, but because he was inherently evil, he wasn't going to. The question is, can a leopard change its spots? There is a message of hope. Let's join Dr. Corbett now to explore the question, can a leopard change its spots? Please turn to Jeremiah chapter 13. We're going to pick it up from verse 18 down to verse 27. This is part 32 of Jeremiah. We are deliberately taking our time through the book of Jeremiah so that we can really Get a, get a feel for the pace of the Word of God and, and a feel for the heart of the Word of God. And so as we look at this part of Jeremiah, we've seen that the prophet has been challenging the people in regard to their sin. We, we've seen that the Lord gripped this young man. He would have been perhaps 12, 13 years of age when God appeared to him and initially called him. And so this, this young man expresses his reluctance at being called. He did not want to be called. He did not seek the call of God. And on several occasions, he actually resigns his call. At times, God lets him vent and then cuts him short and says, OK, if you're finished now, I've, we've got some more work to do and gets back in. It's almost as if God just ignores his resignation. Now, the first 12 chapters or so of the book of Jeremiah is... Jeremiah pleading with King Jehoiachin essentially that you, you cannot expect God to be on your side when you're not on his. You cannot expect that the, that the God of the covenant will, will fulfill the conditions of the covenant if you yourself are breaking every condition in the covenant. And this is the context that we, we come to now where uh, Nebuchadnezzar did invade and we're going to read some things in here that will what I'm saying now hopefully will help you to understand this passage this closing passage of chapter 13 so now we're going to back up in that story and we're, we're coming just before just before Nebuchadnezzar comes in to depose King Jehoiachin King Jehoiachin is ruling with his mother the queen mother and in their arrogance they, they had scoffed publicly at the prophet Jeremiah. They'd scoffed publicly at him. There's a lot I could say about people who scoff. When, whenever I see somebody who hates Christians you, and, and they scoff at Christianity, you know there's something going on. You know there's a deeper story involved. So here we have the, the, the king, King Jehoiachin and his mother, who are ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. And the prophet Jeremiah stands before the king and the, the queen mother. And we know the story is going to unfold that Nebuchadnezzar will come in and he will depose this king and he will depose uh, the queen mother as well. And they'll be sent to Babylon as prisoners and they shall never be released. So this is what's going to happen. We know this happens from history. And Jeremiah is going to say to this king, how can you expect God to help you and the king is going but why should I even bother to call upon God look at all the disaster that's happened so far I mean if God was really on our side these things wouldn't happen and we wouldn't be facing this calamity now 
And the prophet Jeremiah looks at him like, you really, truly don't get it, do you? You really, truly don't get it. You think God is there for you. You think you are the one who tells God what to do and he must comply. You don't get it. King King Jehoiachin, you are so corrupt. Your mind is so darkened that you cannot even begin to understand. And doesn't the New Testament say something like that? Doesn't it say the God of this world has blinded their eyes? They cannot see. You know, it takes a gift from God to get it. It takes a gift from God to see your true condition. Without that gift, you basically think you're okay. Without that gift, you think you're doing God a favour if he was to kind of buddy up with you. But when God opens your eyes, it's a gift. And when he does, you see yourself as you truly are and you see your heart as it truly is. The lights go on and you see the the things that you prized were vile and ugly in the sight of God. And until that day, until your eyes are opened, you don't get it. And King Jehoiachin did not get it. And so the prophet is about to tell him, you are like a leopard with spots. A leopard who wishes to change its spots. But you can no more change your wicked, evil heart than a leopard could change its spots. And so, as we look at this section, we open in verse 18. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. Verse 19, the cities of the Negev are shut up. These are the cities south of Jerusalem that I was referring to before. With none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. This is what I was referring to before. When Nebuchadnezzar came in and he took these towns, exiled their people and took them to Babylon. Verse 20, lift up your eyes and see. Those who come from the north, so geographically we have Israel to the north, what is modern uh, Iraq, which is where Babylon was. Uh, So this is to the north. So to the north, this is where they're coming, this way. Where is the flock that was given you? Your beautiful flock. Look how God speaks of his people and look at who God holds accountable and responsible for God's people. He held the king, the leaders of Israel, accountable and responsible. You can see many commentators point out that it's not usual for people to confront kings. It's not usual. But there are times in the history of God's people and the unfolding purpose of God where God will send someone like a Jeremiah to confront a king, to confront a king with his or her sin. Verse 21. What will you say when they set as head over you those whom yourself have taught to be friends to you? Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labour? Verse 22. 
And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? You ever heard that? What have I done to deserve this? We hear it all the time, don't we? Notice what Jeremiah says, and I want to be careful as I make some application here because this could sound very condemning. But let's look at what the text says. It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. So Jeremiah is saying, in response to this question, why has this happened to me? What have I done? Which is, a, which is a question of incredible arrogance. Because the king had sacrificed to false gods. We read that his uh, was it grandfather or great-grandfather had even burnt some of his children. We learnt that this practice continued. Jeremiah has addressed this, where it talks about you burn your children to Molech in the valley of Hinnom at Tophet. Here's King Jehoiachin saying, why has any of this happened to me? I haven't done anything wrong. And Jeremiah is looking at him like, you have got to be kidding me. You publicly commit adultery. You are a sexual pervert. You commit idolatry. You lead all of Israel to commit idolatry. You shake your fist at God. Things go wrong. You appeal to God to help you. God not only doesn't help you, but you then discover it is God himself who has orchestrated this discipline upon your life. And you ask, why me? You have got to be kidding. That's not in the text. That's me putting that in. But the the moment is, 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 is amazing here. The arrogance is amazing. And here we we begin to see what the Bible describes as the utter evil and wickedness of the human heart. The reformers coined an expression, and the expression was this, the total depravity of man. Man left to his own devices is totally depraved. It doesn't mean we foam at the mouth and we're all the time. To be depraved means that even our best, even our 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 own goodness is really an act of selfishness. We do good things to be seen. We, we, We are kind to people in the hope that they'll be kind back. Everything has a string attached. We are so corrupt in our heart, left to our own devices. There is nothing good in us. Jeremiah makes this this point. And so this is called the total depravity of man. It's, 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 it's a foundational teaching of Christianity that, that when you, when you realise what, what it, your heart is really like, and, and this is where I think as Christians we don't need more self-esteem. We need more Christ-esteem. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's not about... Well, you know, if I just look into the mirror and tell myself, God has saved me, therefore I must be pretty good, you have got it completely wrong. I know there are paperback books that literally tell you to do that. I know. You've wasted your money. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you, but it's not, it's not going to be good for your soul. You look in the mirror and you go, there is nothing good with me. 
What amazing love, what amazing grace that God would send his son to die for me. That's Christ esteem. That's where you esteem Christ. And we even distort scriptures. This is called, and I know what you're all thinking. You're all thinking, this sounds like perspicacity. And you're right. You are absolute, again, you are right. This is perspicacity. This is where we look at something and we put our own filter on it in the hope that we can twist it for our benefit. And we, we take scriptures like, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And we go, see, I can't love my neighbor until I love myself. Therefore, I'm going to work on loving myself. Ay, caramba! <laughs> this is exactly what Jesus was speaking against. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And he doesn't assume that you have to work on loving yourself. He just takes it for granted that we all do. We all do. He says, stop doing it and start to treat others. And and I used a a story yesterday at the leaders barbecue where I said that there's a story of two mountain goats. I love this story. I've used this story nearly every day for the last three weeks. It's a wonderful story. But it's, it's profound. It's a story of two mountain goats, one coming down a high mountain ridge, the other one coming up a high mountain ridge. Why they want to go to the top of the mountain, I don't know, but they're called mountain goats for a reason, I suppose. So one's coming down, one's coming up. The ridge is, you know, three inches this way, you die. Three inches this way, you die. And so these two goats coming down, they're going to butt heads and one of them's going to die so the other one can get where he wants to go. There is, of course, another option. The other option, as I shared at the leaders meeting, is that one of the goats chooses to lay down and let the other one walk over him. In that way, they both live and they both get to where they want to be. Probably for both of them, it's a little bit inconvenient at the time. But they both get to where they want to go. It takes humility laying down and saying, God, there's nothing good in me. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. And that attitude was not the attitude of King Jehoiachin. It wasn't his attitude. Jeremiah is going to go on in uh, Jeremiah, uh, where is it, 17 verse 9. And he, he actually says this. The heart is deceitful above all things. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. What, when the Bible speaks of heart, what was it? No, it's, the, it's the core of your soul. The very core of who you are is incredibly deceitful. Now, if you came in here expecting to be pumped, yeah, <laughs> and you feel like, Ah, slide me under the door. That's not my intention either. Because if you do that, where is your focus? It's, it's on ourselves. Can you see what I'm saying? In other words, we need to be Christ esteeming. But we need to recognise our true, real condition. And that is what Jeremiah is doing here. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we need to understand that sin, F.W. Borum says, sin has solved the problem of perpetual motion. It never stops. 
It never stops. Goodness takes a break. Goodness takes a rest. Sin never stops. It keeps going. It keeps going. It keeps going. It keeps going. And so that's why we have to ever be on guard. The deceitfulness of sin. Jeremiah 23, 26 says this. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies, who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? Now, once you know this, this is what we call bad news. (laughs) This is bad news. This is not the good news. This is the bad news. And the good news is that Jesus offers to give us a new heart. A new heart. A heart not made of stone, not resistant, not arrogant to God, but a heart that yields, a heart that does lay down, a heart that says, God, have your way in my life. A heart that says, God, use others to bring your word to my life. A heart that is humble and you cannot earn it. You cannot work to get it. You cannot achieve it. You cannot strive for it. And as I was sharing with Tyrone this morning, humility is a gift. It's nothing you can strive for to attain. Because imagine if you could strive for and attain humility, you'd have something to brag about. And you'd lose the very thing you claimed you'd attained. So it has to be a gift. God has to put something into your heart. So we're reading verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Can a person left to their own devices be good? God's minimum standard is perfect obedience minimum standard god's minimum standard is perfect righteousness righteousness is right living perfect right living who qualifies none of us god doesn't standardize this the tasmanian education board does but god doesn't this is not a standardized test of righteousness none of us So, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Therefore, also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, you can't. You just can't do it. Now, what do we know from Scripture about how God relates to sinful people? And and I wonder if Jeremiah is there looking at King Jehoiachin and he's, he's, he's dealing with him on this basis. King Jehoiachin, why these things come upon you? Because you are rotten to the core. You, you have, you, you, sin has gripped your heart. You are deceived by sin. This is why these things have happened. And I wonder if Jeremiah is able to reiterate in his own you know, thinking at this point, some of the things he's already said, that God is patient. He is long-suffering. Notice this. God is patient. We know that, don't we? God is patient. He's long-suffering. But you know, the fact that God is patient doesn't mean God is indifferent. Indifferent means doesn't care. God is patient toward us while we're in rebellion. Now, there are some people that teach God is so infinitely above us that anything we can do has no effect on our standing before him at all. And that, that is just not true. It's not true. God holds us as image bearers. 
We bear his image and he is patient with us. But note that word patient. It doesn't mean indifferent. It means that there is a time when he won't act, but then there will come a time when he will. Patient doesn't mean complete inactivity. It means postponed activity. God will hold everyone to account. I remember when I was 16, I heard a message about the books. Revelation 20, uh, was it verse uh, 9 or 10? It says, and the books will be open. And this person explained, this preacher explained, that God has a book of life. Either your name is in the book of life or it's not. Then the other books will be open. The book of prayer, the book of actions, the book of your deeds. And I suddenly realised just how serious this thing called life is. I was about 16 at the time and it gripped my life that everything I said, everything I did, everything I thought, everything I prayed actually mattered. God is patient and I thank God he was patient with me. Verse 24. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. Verse 25. This is your lot, the portion I've measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. Verse 26. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face. That was what an invading army would do to its captives. Take the robes, take the robes of men and lift it up and and they would have to parade as prisoners, essentially naked. One of the most shameful things you can do to someone. And God says, this is what's going to happen to you. And we know that it literally did. Nebuchadnezzar literally humiliated King Jehoiachin. Verse 27. I've seen your abominations, your adulteries and names, your lewd whorings on the hills in the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. How long will it be before you are made clean? Now, what would you do if you're King Jehoiachin and the prophet Jeremiah has just spoken like this to you? What would you do? I mean, imagine if everything this young man who's now in his 20s has said, everything he has said would happen within a certain time frame, it's happened. This young man, Jeremiah, has credibility. He's, pre- he's prophesied that, ne- that, that Nebuchadnezzar would come when all the other prophets in Jerusalem said it would never happen, and it did. He prophesied that that King Nebuchadnezzar would come in and would, would take King and the first King, uh, King Jehoiakim, and take him and others ex- into exile, and it happened. And now he's prophesying this. This is going to happen to you. You and your mother are going to be deposed. She's going to be stripped naked. You are going to have the robe lifted over your head. You are going to bear your nakedness as you are humiliated and led out of the city. Because you have abandoned God, this will happen to you. Now... Your King Jehoiachin, this is how you should have responded. I repent. Jeremiah, I repent. I want God to forgive me. I want God to show me favour and mercy. I'm sorry and I acknowledge my sin. That's what he should have done. 
And maybe you're here today and you're hearing me say the human heart is completely deceitful. There's nothing good in you. You are wicked. Without Jesus, you will be damned for eternity. And you're going, who do you think you are, fella? Maybe that's your attitude. And I just want to kind of point out in as gentle a way as I can, that's how King Jehoiachin actually did respond to Jeremiah. In fact, we read that Jeremiah was imprisoned because he dared to speak to the king like this. And the tragedy of it is that as Jeremiah was imprisoned, Nebuchadnezzar came in and did everything Jeremiah said would happen. What a, what a strange thing that when, when God pleads with you to repent, instead of open palm, it's a clenched fist in anger. See, here's my thought, because I, I, I hope we as believers today are able to process tragedy and disaster and even discipline in our own lives in a way that doesn't shake a fist at God. But when tough times come, times of trouble, we turn to God, not away from God. When life gets tough, that's not the moment to be shaking a fist at God. It's not the moment to be blaming God. In times of trouble, you don't shake your fist at God. At times of, of, of calamity, it's not God you get angry and start saying, why me? I don't deserve this. Listen, Ugh! turn that equation completely around and go, Lord, I don't deserve a thing. And any good thing that I've had, you've given to me completely as an act of your grace. I didn't deserve a thing. Can you see how the equation gets turned around? Yesterday I was at the National uh, Day of Thanksgiving breakfast and there was someone there who was not a Christian, who was one of the four guest speakers. The other three guest speakers were Christians and they did a wonderful job. But there was someone else who shared and he shared the story of, you know, here I am at the Thanksgiving Day. I'm not quite sure why we should give God any thanks. I have a friend who uh, her husband cheated on her and divorced her and left her with the kids and then... She was hit by a car and then after that she got cancer and then after that she remarried, she had a child and then a brain tumour uh, took her life. What has she got to be thankful to God for? Thank you very much. It was like, wow. I wish I could sit down with this guy and have a talk, and a, someone in this city in a position of tremendous influence in this city, if not the single biggest position of influence in this city in the media and I just wish I, I could spend some time with this person and say I think you've got it all wrong I, I think you you have got God and us completely confused I think you've swapped the price tags I think you need to reassess life here's a different way of looking at life anything you have that is good has come from God that's what it says in the book of James. Anything. And you need to be thankful for anything that you have that is good. Not to arrogantly say, I did that. That's me. That's all me. It wasn't God. I did that. That's an arrogant way to live. In times of trouble, you need to know that you, that you should turn to God, not run from him. Here's the other thought as I bring this to a close. King Jehoiachin 
boy, you know, there's Jeremiah saying you've committed adultery, you've committed idolatry, you've led the whole nation into sin. Your sin is one of the worst sins anyone could ever commit. And the worst sin is this, you have rejected God. There is no greater sin. The Bible actually calls that an unforgivable sin. To reject Christ is the unforgivable sin. There is, there is nothing that, that we can do with that. But here's the point. There are some people who have sinned so bad and we look at them and their sin is obvious and fw boreham in 1902 wrote an essay about religious arrogance and he said how often do we look at the woman of the street and go sinner how often do we look at the drunk in the gutter and go sinner when we ourselves fail to recognize that our religious arrogance is just as sinful The only thing is we dress it up to look decent. So when we think of John Wesley ministering in England, as I bring this to a close, I want you to think about this. He ministered to coal miners. He ministered to factory workers who had been told by the elite of that day. God will not forgive you. You are common. You will not be going to heaven. And you know what their response was largely in 18th century England? Oh, well, if that's the case, let's go to hell in a party. And England went to hell in a handbasket in the 18th century. Rampant sin because there were church bishops, there were government officials who said, God cannot forgive you. You are too sinful to be forgiven. And John Wesley comes along gripped by this newfound faith in Christ that he forgives sin and he says that is not true you have been lied to you are not destined to go to hell you have a destiny that you choose you choose to receive Christ as saviour and thousands upon thousands upon thousands did and they turned to Christ now let's go back in time even before that and we are going to find in the time of Christ that there was exactly the same cultural conditions there were the religious scribes and pharisees the sadducees who were telling the common people only the religious only the truly initiated can be forgiven of sin and you are too sinful to be forgiven of sin so what do we end up with a jerusalem in the time of christ full of prostitutes full of thieves full of drunkards full of revilers and who did jesus go to them and what did he say to them my father in heaven loves you he can forgive you and here's what king jehoiachin in an honest moment should have wondered can god forgive me for all i've done and i hope that i get you in an honest moment and i hope this question is a question we all ask can god forgive me and the answer is the cross The answer is the cross. There is no sin too gross for Christ's cross. That's what King Jehoiachin should have come to. But in his pride and arrogance, he didn't. And it's my prayer that we won't be a people of pride and arrogance. We won't be a people that say, you can't teach me anything. There's nothing I could learn from you. There's nothing God can do in my life. I'm too far gone because even sinful arrogance can sound, can sound convincing. 
I hope that whenever we sin, whenever we fail, we don't give up. As Amanda said over the worship, we don't give up. But we come again to the cross and we worship a saviour who forgives and forgives and forgives. Amen. Amen. Father, I pray that you would help us to see what King Jehoiachin never did. That you are a God who forgives. You are a God of grace. You are a God of mercy. You are our redeemer. You rescue us. And Lord, there may be people here right now who thought they'd gone too far. There may be people now who have thought there's nothing you are prepared to do because they've sinned one too many sins. They've gone too far away from you. But Lord, you are reaching out to them right now in love and grace and forgiveness. And if that's you, you think you've done things that no one else knows. Those close to you don't know. Those around you don't know. You've not told anyone what you've done. You've been looking for a fresh start. And I'm telling you that Jesus is your fresh start. Jesus is the one who takes your sin and casts it away from you as far as the east is from the west. If you will but pray, if you will but ask him to forgive you of your sin, if you will but ask him to become your saviour and your Lord. It's one prayer, a prayer that says, Jesus, forgive me of my sin, cleanse my soul and help me to live for you. One prayer like that can not only change the direction of your life right now, it can change your life for good, for eternity. And now, Father, I pray for us as a church, how often it is that we do not walk in confidence, in the confidence of Christ as Saviour. We walk knowing that he did save us, but then we try to walk in our own righteousness. We try to walk as if we have to fix up every problem we create. And oh God, I pray for us, the church, that we will walk utterly dependent upon the Saviour. Lord, in Jesus' name I pray for us to be in Christ. I pray. Amen.